How did the world begin? Why are there troubles in this world? Is this all there is? God hasn't left us alone to answer these questions and many more that trouble us in our quiet moments and worst nightmares. The Bible gives us the answers, and in this lesson, as we start reading through the Bible, we lay the foundation for them. Hi, I'm Yvonne Pran from Bible 805, where you learn to know, trust, and apply the Bible. Our lesson for today is Genesis and Job, Answers to the Big Questions of Life, Part 1. Why are we here? What went wrong? Is this all there is? The beginning of the Bible is literally the beginning. In the beginning, God, are the words of Genesis 1-1. Before all else, we are introduced to the protagonist of the story, God. From beginning to end, it's his story. The story begins with God creating a parenthesis in eternity to carefully craft a world. He then fills this world with living creatures and ultimately with one created in his image, mankind male and female, to whom he assigns fulfilling work and with whom he will walk in a perfect world. But an enemy was also there, Satan, the antagonist, and almost immediately he enters the scene. And God's beloved creation turn against him, and that sets up the plot, the storyline of the rest of the Bible. Now before we move on with the plot, the storyline, I want to acknowledge that there's a lot that's been written about the details of creation. If those details are important to you, exactly how many days it was, whether it was a literal seven or a figurative or a young earth or an old earth or all of those sorts of things there's many wonderful resources online where you can check them out but we won't be talking about them the emphasis from Bible 805 is not so much about the when and how of creation but about the who the God who created is the God who as the story goes along cares for redeems and ultimately restores his people in creation. As has been said, history truly is his story. And it's a long story, so let's get started. As you start reading through the Bible, you'll begin reading in Genesis, which is what most people expect as we start reading through the Bible. But then, after three days, you jump right into Job in the plan that I have you reading. Now, what's going on, you might ask? In most Bibles, the book of Job is close to the middle of the Bible, just before Psalms. However, in many chronological Bible reading plans, like the one that I have for you from Bible 805, Job is placed near the beginning of the book of Genesis. Now, this shift in reading isn't an arbitrary one. It is extremely important. Job, along with Genesis, sets the foundation for the major themes that follow in the Bible. I can't emphasize the importance of this enough, as I fear many of the greatest dangers, or one of the greatest dangers, in reading the Bible for many people today is to consider the Bible primarily just a collection of good suggestions. Now, a lot of people wouldn't really say that. Um, Maybe they think of it as better than just good suggestions. I mean, you know, maybe it comes from God, but how do we know the Bible comes from God other than being just told that it is. One of the best ways to experience God's authorship of the Bible for yourself is to read through the Bible in proper chronological order, where you read the events in the order they happened, 
and where you read the prophets in their proper historical setting. Rather than scattered events and sermons by loosely related people, I mean, we know they're all Bible people, but it's a story here, a story there, a prophet here, a prophet there. When you read the Bible in chronological historical order, you see how the events fit together. Why the prophets preached when they did, how prophecy is fulfilled, and the power of progressive revelation. You see for yourself how God is the one author of the one story of the Bible. Reading the Bible with any system, even if you jump around like many of them do where you'll read the history and then maybe a couple of months later you get around to reading the prophets that spoke at that time and then you you read uh, this gospel here and then you read another thing there and, you know, for various reasons it's all jumbled up. But any system is better than not reading it at all. But I strongly recommend that you try reading it in chronological historical order and just see the difference that it will make. Now please check out the foundational lessons that explain this in probably excruciating detail that I have for you. Links, schedules, all of that is on the website www.bible805.com. Now next I'm going to give you some additional reasons for why and Job should be read together. First of all, they have one author. Both were written down by the same author, Moses. However, in both cases, Moses, of course, is more of an editor than what we normally think of as an author. An author creates the content, but in Genesis and Job, the words are not originally his. The content was revealed from God, plus Moses had access to oral and written records of what happened prior to his life. Now let's look at the traditional geographical and historical details that affirm Moses as the author of both books. First of all, traditional witness of Moses' authorship. There are some contemporary anti-supernaturalist views that dispute that Moses was the author of the book of Job and refer to it as primarily a fictional allegorical story by some unnamed author. There is, however, no solid evidence for this view. And in contrast, thousands of years of history and tradition hold the view that Moses was the author. Uh, this excerpt from um, from one of the articles, you can you can look up the uh, the exact citation in my notes, summarizes it really well, where it says, Uniform Jewish tradition ascribed the book of Job to Moses and also accepted it as part of the true canon of scripture. This ascription seems quite reasonable if Moses is regarded as an editor. Moses most likely came into possession of Job's record during his 40-year exile from Egypt in the land of Midian, not for from Job's own homeland in Uz, and quickly recognized its importance. It was probably similar to how he compiled and organized the primeval records from which he has also given us the book of Genesis. That being the case, the book of Job is probably the oldest book in the Bible. It contains more references to creation, the flood, and other primeval events than any book of the Bible except Genesis and provides more insight into the age-long conflict between God and Satan than almost any other book. 
This is the view I believe is true. I've done extensive research on this, and following I'm again condensing some additional evidence that shows that Moses was the author, the day and the date, the early date for its content. Now the geographical evidence for Moses' authorship, biblical archaeology and geography all place us where the book takes place near Midian, as the previous quote stated, where Moses spent 40 years after he fled Egypt. And I think it's really interesting how we see that it was not an accident that God sent Moses to the specific place where he would have heard the oral history of Job, and perhaps he even had access to written documents of Job's story. Now, additional historical evidence on the dating of the book. Um, as I've shared in other things, I, I do have a master's degree in history, emphasizing the history of the church. I did um, teach on the university level for a time, a church history. And as a historian, when you read a book, there is a lot of internal evidence that you look for that helps you date the book. And if we just look at the book of Job, here are some of the things that we would be looking for that we would see. For Moses to be the author, the book needs to take place prior to the time of the Exodus. In other words, during the time of the patriarchs. That is what the book shows through the historical details that are just mentioned in passing, but they're very important because they describe a time that was similar to the patriarchal society described elsewhere in the Bible. It was a nomadic lifestyle of living in tents, of wealth that was measured in various herds of different kinds of animals. It was pre-law, as evidenced by Job's personal sacrifices for his family if they sinned. It was a time without a formal priesthood or temple structure, and none of those things are referred to in any way. Also, it was a time without any overall strong central government. There are no kings or sons of kings or wars that kings did or anything like that mentioned. The overall picture of Job is very similar to how we would picture the world of Abraham, which would be consistent with the world presented in the accounts of both of their lives. Now one more thing. Reading Job out of historical context or reading it as part of the poetical books has a very dangerous potential result in that for people and not only biblical critics but casual readers to perhaps without thinking make Job into just sort of a fictional or allegorical character who represents unjust suffering. That is not how the Bible presents Job. And to think of him in any way that robs, to think of him in that way, robs the book of much of its power. Here is how the Bible confirms Job as a real individual. First of all, the Old Testament biblical confirmation that he was a real person. The first is from Ezekiel. He was a priest and an exile from Israel who was deported from Israel to Babylon, and this was prior to the fall of Jerusalem. Now, in a passage where God is giving him a message about coming judgment, this is what Ezekiel writes. He says, even if these three men, Noah, Daniel, and Job, were in it, they could save only themselves by their righteousness, declares the Sovereign Lord. Now, God speaks. 
Ezekiel repeats his words with a clear sense that these three are real persons. Now, it's very interesting why I say that is because, number one, Daniel was his contemporary. Daniel was also a fellow exile in Babylon, so he's writing about someone that lived when he did in the location that he lived in. Now, not only does Ezekiel consider Noah a real person, but the historical reality of Noah is verified by Jesus when he used him to illustrate how the world would be prior to his second coming in Matthew 24. And so you have um, Daniel as a real person, Noah as a real person, and then Ezekiel places Job as a real individual alongside these other two, clearly taking him out of the realm of being just a fictional character. Then on the New Testament biblical confirmation that Job was a real person, it says in James 5.11, As you know, we count as blessed those who have persevered. You've heard of Job's perseverance and have seen what the Lord finally brought about. The Lord is full of compassion and mercy. James cites Job in a way that assumes he's talking about a real person. His assertion here would not have any meaning at all if Job was simply a Jewish folktale written by an unknown person. In addition to this specific example, please note the best commentary on the Bible is the Bible itself. Because of that, we should expect that the various parts of the Bible agree with and comment on each other as these passages that talk about Job do. Now, a summary and review of what we know about Job so far. Based on tradition, biblical confirmation, the historical and geographical evidence we have, we read Job believing that, number one, he was a real person who lived about the time of the patriarchs. Next, what took place in the book are true events experienced by Job. The final form was supernaturally revealed to and recorded in its final form by Moses. For us, it follows then that Job, as with all the Bible, as it tells us in 2 Timothy 3.16, was given to us by inspiration from God and is useful to teach us what is true and to make us realize what is wrong in our lives. It straightens us out and helps us do what is right. That's why we can use the books of Job and Genesis to answer the big foundational questions of life. So what are the big foundational questions I'm referring to? Number one, how did we get here? Number two, what went wrong? And closely tied to that, I kind of call it a sub-question, who is Satan and what power does he have? Number three, is there life after death? Number four, what about people who've never heard of Jesus? Number five, why do innocent people suffer? And number six, How can we help people who are suffering? We will cover the first three in this lesson and then the next three in our next lesson. In this lesson, we'll primarily look at how Job answers our questions with some references back to Genesis. We're going to talk more, though, about the people and the stories of Genesis in another lesson. So first of all, let's just take an overview of what happens in Job. The book opens describing Job as God's ideal man. Satan appears before God and challenges God that Job only serves him because God blesses him. To see if that's true, God allows Satan to harm Job and he loses wealth, family, and finally his health. Three friends and a fourth later come to comfort Job, but instead they accuse and repeat false beliefs about God. 
Job consistently defends himself and demands a defense before God. God responds and shows his power. It's important to note God never answers Job's questions, but Job repents and he is restored. Now, question number one, how did we get here? Both Genesis and Job answer this question. In the beginning, God is how Genesis starts, and Genesis continues with the record of God's creation of all things. God as creator is confirmed in Job when God confronts him and begins by establishing who he, God, is on the basis of creation when he says, Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you know so much. Do you know how its dimensions were determined and who did the surveying? What supports its foundations and who laid its cornerstone? As the morning stars sang together and all the angels shouted for joy. This reality that God created us is a foundation for his claims on us and the answer to our questions for meaning and fulfillment in life. The rest of the Bible affirms again and again God's creation of everything as in Psalm 103 where it says he made us. And in Acts 17:28, where it says, In him we live and move and have our being. There is no such thing as a self-made man or woman. Humanity is not the result of time plus chance or evolution or any other thing other than God's creation. We are created by a loving God who knows what is best for us and designed our lives for meaning and purpose. We sometimes trivialize the description of the gospel as the owner's manual. And for best functioning of life, we tell people, read the directions. But it's so true. C.S. Lewis put it this way, God cannot give us a happiness and peace apart from himself because it is not there. There is no such thing. Question number two, what went wrong? Genesis tells us part of the story Job expands on it. In Genesis 3, an antagonist enters the story, Satan, first introduced as the serpent. God gave humanity only one negative command. Don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But the antagonist, Satan, offered an alternative to trusting God. Genesis tells us that Adam and Eve chose the alternative, and we call this action the fall. Now, in the storyline of the Bible, the fall is a conflict that initiates all the following actions of the Bible. Everything changes with this event. Immediately after the fall, God promises a Savior, and though we don't know the entire story at this time, the actions of that promised Savior would reverse paradise lost with a paradise regained. But that's a long time from now. As we start this story, let's look more closely at the antagonist, at Satan, so we can understand his tactics better, because unfortunately, he's part of many Bible stories and of our story also. Now, some other scriptures to help us understand Satan more fully. He was the highest of created beings. He was an angel 
who once held a place of honor before God, but he rebelled and was removed from his place. We find that out in Isaiah 14:12, where it says, How you are fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning! How you are cut down to the ground, mighty though you were against the nations of the world. You can also read Ezekiel 28 for more pictures of his fall when you have time or if you have the interest in reading that. Now, of course, we all wish we knew more about Satan's backstory and all sorts of myths and legends and everything have come up about it. But And what we do know from the Bible is, of course, clothed in symbolic language, and there's a lot we don't know. But God has told us all we need to know. Satan's past does not concern us nearly as much as what he is doing now. And the book of Job gives us important insight into his current actions and his limitations. We need to keep these things in mind as we read through the Bible and in our daily lives. Now here are some of the things that how what Job shows us about Satan. One, that Satan has access to God. Next, he is allowed to initiate natural disasters, crime and death, and sickness. All of these he did to Job. Now, this is very frustrating because nowhere in the Bible are we given specifics about his ability to continue to do them or what, how he does them or if he does them today. We don't know. However, we do know that they are all, when, that when they happen, they are all under God's control and limitations. Now, not only do we see this in Job, but of course also in the New Testament when Jesus stills the storm. I think that's such an extraordinary story where he's he's out with his disciples and he's really tired, so he falls asleep on the ship and this huge storm comes up and the disciples run to him and go, don't you care that we're perishing and all that? And it's his calmness in it is just astounding where he just you know sort of stands up and looks at him and then he just looks at the storm and as the creator as God himself he just says peace be still and the storm ceases so we know that no matter what the source of chaos or troubles or any of those things just like in Job God is ultimately in control. Now a little bit more about how Satan's power is limited. Clearly in Job, and this is this is super important to understand, Job is support, subordinate to God. There is no dualism in the Bible. God and Satan are not two equal powers engaged in a cosmic battle. In many mythologies and other religions there's a good power, a bad power, and you know sometimes that even uh, shifts down to popular imagination of a little angel on one shoulder and a demon on the other and these two are equal powers. No, it's a very unequal battle. Satan is God's creation. He is not eternal. He is not all-powerful. He is not all-knowing. He cannot read your thoughts. He cannot know the future for certain. He is also not omnipresent. He can't be everywhere at once, though he does have legions of demonic powers. In Job 1, Satan appears before God in an obvious place of submission. God questions him. God limits him. 
This is a foundational lesson in Job and throughout the rest of the Bible and in our world today. It is an assurance repeated in the New Testament. You are of God, little children, and have overcome them. And this is referring to Satan and his influence. Because greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. That's in 1 John 4.4. 4. But, though limited, Satan can still cause a lot of trouble. Satan is not at all original in his strategies. What he used to tempt Adam and Eve, he continues to use now. This very simple statement in Genesis 3.1, where he says, Did God really say... Satan continues to use that again and again. Satan always begins with questioning if God really said something and then progresses to suggesting an alternative that sounds good but is ultimately destructive. To stand up against that chatter in your head, you need to know what God's word truly says, what he truly wants you to do. Because if you just remember little bits and pieces, you won't know. You will begin to doubt. It is only through God's word that you will know for certain what God wants because our world, our culture, our values today seem so pleasing in many ways as the fruit did to Eve, but they are ultimately destructive. Additionally, what we see about Satan in Job is he's a re- he is restless. He wanders the earth and he's an accuser of God's people. He was then, he is now. The Lord said to Satan in Job 1.7, Where have you come from? Satan answered the Lord, From roaming throughout the earth, going back and forth on it. In the New Testament, we see this hasn't changed in 1 Peter 5.8 where it says, Be, be careful. Watch out for attacks from Satan, your great enemy. He prowls around like a hungry, roaring lion, looking for some victim to tear apart. In that wandering, one of the main things he does, he did it then, he does it now, is he accuses God's people. In Job 8, God points out the blameless life of Job, and Satan responds, Does Job fear God for nothing? Satan will twist every good thing in our lives and the lives of others to something evil. That chatter in your head, continually telling you what a mess you are, it's seldom from God. God's voice of conviction gives you a way to do better. Satan simply pounds on you. Don't listen to him. Evaluate your life in light of God's word. Confess your sin if necessary and press ahead assured of God's love and forgiveness. Also, this is why slander, gossip, thinking evil of our brothers and sisters of anyone is so wrong. We're listening to Satan. We're doing Satan's work when we shouldn't be doing that. We never know what is truly going on in another's life. Grant them the grace you receive from God and want for yourself. And just don't do that. Don't accuse. Pray. Satan's interference with people is significant, but it will not last forever. We are reminded that we're not fighting against people made of flesh and blood, but against persons without bodies, the evil rulers of the unseen world, those mighty satanic beings, and great evil princes of darkness who rule this world, and against huge numbers of wicked spirits in the spirit world.
Jesus rose from the dead, and Satan's interference with God's people will also someday come to an end, and Satan will be thrown into the lake of fire. The accusing chatter in our minds will cease. The interference in our lives and world will be over. As it tells us in Revelation 12.10, Now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Messiah. For the accuser of our brothers and sisters who accuses them before our God day and night has been hurled down. Hopeful words, but will we be around to see them? And now we come to question number three. Is there life after death? The answer is incredibly important to understand because as the Apostle Paul told us, if in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most miserable. Of the many big questions of life that Job answers, the question of is there life after death is definitely the most important because it literally pulls all else that happens to us into proper perspective. Our God is an eternal God, and He did not create throwaway creatures. If there's no life after death, no salvation from the punishment of death, there's no point to the rest of the Bible. But there is salvation from death. There is a Savior who will conquer death, and the effects of His victory will reach back to the earliest days of humanity. And Job affirms this truth. Job provides an early and definitive answer to this question. Job 14, 14, and 15 affirm the physical bodily resurrection. I'll read it and then we'll take a closer look at the Hebrew words. Job says in this passage, If someone dies, will they live again? All the days of my hard service, I will wait for my renewal to come. You will call and I will answer you. You will long for the creature your hands have made. I know that my Redeemer lives, and that in the end he will stand on the earth. And after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh I will see God. I myself will see him with my own eyes, I and not another. How my heart yearns within me. A few notes on this, on in um, verse 14, where it talks about, I will wait for my renewal. That is the Hebrew word chalifa, and it means a change of garments, a renewal. And how similar that is to the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 5.1, where he talks about exchanging his earthly tent. Just like here, it's a change of garments. It's a renewal. Paul says he is going to change his earthly tent for a heavenly one. And then, really exciting, is basar. The word basar in 26, where it says, After my skin, my basar has been destroyed. Yet in my flesh, my basar, I will see God. You see... He's talking about the same thing. In this life, it's his skin, and he talks about how in the next one, he will also be flesh, flesh and bones, a tangible resurrection, like when Jesus came back from the dead, and he said to his disciples, he said, touch me, touch me. (laughs) See, he says, I'm not a ghost, I'm flesh and bones. The Christian resurrection is a full physical resurrection, and Job, 
in this earliest book in the Bible, he knew that that was reality. He knew that was the truth. Even early in his struggles, he knew this. As the passage we just discussed shows, Job knew that his, his earthly pain was not all there was to his story. And there, But there are sadly many, including some in the church and some who teach the Bible who say things like, in the Old Testament, there was no clear belief in life after death. That's just simple not true. As this passage in Job and many others show, I have a very detailed, actually I have two lessons on this. Please go to uh, Bible805.com where I have a whole, a very lengthy and detailed lesson how the Old Testament shows us again and again the firm belief in life after death. But this passage in Job is the first place we see it. Now one more helpful reminder. As one writer said, if we truly believe in the promised joy of a fulfilling, meaningful eternity spent with those we love and a God who loves us, even the most horrible experiences of life will seem like one night spent in a bad hotel. Now, realistically, you might be in that horrid, bad hotel right now. But be assured that as the book of Job shows us and the rest of the Bible affirms, joy will come. Perhaps not in this life, but it will come and it will last forever. I pray that what we've covered today are comforting truths to those who know Jesus. But the answers to our questions today bring up more questions that we'll cover in Genesis and Job, Answers to the Big Questions of Life, Part 2, where we'll talk about these questions. What about people who've never heard about Jesus? Why do innocent people suffer? And how can we help people who are suffering? Join me as I lay a solid foundation for studying the remainder of the Bible because the big questions covered in this lesson and the next will come up again and again. And until then, be encouraged with these final words from Job. I know my Redeemer lives and that in the end he will stand on the earth and after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh I will see God. That's all for now. For notes from this lesson, related resources, and helpful links, please go to www.bible805.com. In closing, I'm Yvonne Pran, your fellow pilgrim, writer, and teacher for Jesus, and I'd like to end with this benediction. May you know the invitation of God to move from confusion to clarity, from wandering to rest, from loneliness to knowing you are loved, from turmoil to peace, from wherever you are on your spiritual journey to a growing knowledge of God's Word and in your personal relationship with the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.